Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Michael Duke Show. Oh, my goodness. We have got quite a day lined up for you. Are you ready? We're going to be jumping in on this and uh, getting things uh, squared away. Tuesdays means, of course... The Weekly Top 3, where we get a chance to talk with Brad Keithley from Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets about three big issues that uh, <clears throat> that he thinks are important. Uh, I guarantee I know what one of them is going to be because I was railing on it yesterday, and I think Brad's going to take that one up immediately, uh, this whole crisis in the making, or should I said this manufactured crisis in the making. Uh, and uh, we're going to go over those three things with Brad in hour one. Then in hour two, we'll be joined by uh, we'll be joined by Chris Story for our weekly Betterment segment and more after we do a recap of Brad's commentary and shows and everything else. So it's going to be good. It's going to be good. So um, let's uh, let's without further ado, let's let's get to it. Uh, joining us from uh, from Cape Brenton. Over there, all the way on the other side of the planet, is uh, is Brad Keithley with Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Good morning, Bradley. How are you, my friend? Michael, I'm doing great today. How about you? You know, uh, again, just another beautiful day in paradise. No snow. Thank you for all you who have been doing the <laughs> for all you who have been doing the anti snow dance for me. I appreciate that. I'm my goal is to try and see if we can keep it off the the ground and from sticking until maybe Halloween. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to live a little bit of a fantasy world here, Brad. But uh, I'm doing I'm doing it as best I can. How about you? How are things going? I'm doing great, Michael. Uh, have you been? Do you have a snow dance that you've been doing? Is there is there are there steps to it? No, no. Out it's... here in Cape Breton, out here in Cape Breton, we do a lot of square dancing and a lot of steps. So oh. steps are important. Oh yeah, no, no. I just kind of look to the heavens and go, please, Lord, please don't do this to me. That's all <laughs> I. That's all I do to get it done. Um, all right, Brad. Well, let's get uh, let's get cracking um, <clears throat> and uh, start talking about this. Yesterday, I had a, a my own kind of little deep dive analysis, and that's where we're going to start today in number one, which is the permanent fund um, and the permanent fund corporation playing right into the hands, or actually working. I guess I would say almost in lockstep with some of the powers that be, including Bert Stedman in trying to take advantage of a manufactured crisis. Uh, and that, of course, is this whole hand-waving freakatory over the inflation-proofing in the fund and how it's just not been done the right way or there's not enough and and how the permanent fund's going to run out of money. So, we, of course, we need to have access to the corpus. And that is where we start off with number one today. 
It is. And, and Michael, I'm going to sort of overlap with some of what you said yesterday because I listened to it and, and enjoyed it and appreciated it. Uh, but I want to emphasize how uh, horrible uh, this scheme is that the Permanent Fund Board may be putting forth. As I, as I sent you the lead in uh, yesterday on, uh, on things I'm going to talk about, uh, the, the lead in is first they came for savings, then they came for the PFD. Now they're coming for the PF permanent fund corpus. And, and that's all this is. This is a continuation of, of what started back in the early 20 teens when they when the legislature started in on draining savings to, uh, to help support spending. Uh, that sort of ran its course. We ran out of savings uh, 2016, 2017, and then they started in on the PFD. And we've seen where cutting the PFD and diverting that to uh, to government spending. And we've seen where that's gone over the last uh, several years. And now now the concern is that's going to sort of run its course. I mean, uh, at, at even 2575, Burt's proposed, the Senate Finance Committee's proposed 25% of the of the of the POMB draw to the permanent fund dividend and 75% to government even that uh, isn't enough to fund uh, the projected government spending levels at the at the declining oil levels uh, by uh, by the end of the decade so they sort of see that coming and now as a continuum first they came for for savings then they came for the PFD and now they're going to come for the permanent fund corpus as a continuum that's that's all this is is setting up a raid on the permanent fund corpus. You've talked about it on the show a lot. I appreciate that. I've learned from that. Uh, but basically, um, what this is is a setup that says, "Look, if our long-term real rate of return after inflation rate of return uh, is going to be in the four percent range, and we're paying out five percent per year of the of the of the permanent funds value uh, uh, to uh, to you know the legislature." Uh, we're we're going to run out of money. I mean, you're going to set yourself on a course where the 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 payments out are going to be higher than the than the income coming in over time, and you're going to gradually drain down the permanent fund corpus. That's all this is. That's all this is. That's all this is set up to do. Um, and and that's just. I mean, that's that's got to be <laughs> coming coming for the permanent fund dividend. I think was unacceptable, but coming for the permanent fund corpus. Uh, I has to, I have to think is is crossing the line, and the fact that the permanent fund board is getting ready to propose this is just outrageous. I mean, I'm gonna this is gonna be it's building into a column that I'm gonna do at some point here uh, in the landmine about why this permanent fund board has to go, why we have to restructure uh, the permanent fund board. The permanent fund board's sole purpose, well, two purposes. One purpose is to generate earnings uh, for uh, uh, for whatever statutory purpose the legislature wants to put to it. And the legislature's got the PFD and the statutes have the PFD uh, and the remaining that goes to government. But their second purpose and probably the overriding purpose is to pr protect the permanent fund corpus. And, and they're setting up a situation in which the permanent fund corpus will be drained. That's what this, that's what this does. So for the permanent fund board, to be involved in this in this proposal, for them to be the ones taking the lead in the proposal, I would say is is operating against their obligations uh, as the board. That they're undercutting themselves, they're undercutting their own objectives, they're violating their own fiduciary obligation. 
to uh, to protect the permanent fund corpus. So I, it's it's outrageous to on a number of levels. It's outrageous that that uh, that we've now got a situation where we've gone through savings, 15 billion in savings. We've gone through savings. We're we're going through the permanent fund dividend, and now. Uh, we're attacking the permanent fund corpus. One other thing that I, I, I want to make the point, and I know I'm not I'm not popular when I make the second point, but I but I want to make it. This is designed to protect two interests. One is government spending. They want to generate. They want to be able to continue to take the five percent, even if the real rate of return is less than five percent. They want to be able to continue to take the five percent to support government spending. But second, and I would argue a co-equal objective of this, is to protect the top 20% against taxes, protect the top 20% oil industry and non-residents uh, against taxes. Because what's happened at, when we've seen this with the PFD, we've seen this since 2016, 2017, when the, when the PFD cuts start, what's happening is, is the top 20%, because they don't have to pay for it, they're not pushing back on spending. And so... You know, Kathy Geisel, in fact, they're even getting out in front of it. Natasha got out in front of it. Kathy Geisel's getting out in front of, you know, urging more spending for defined benefits. You see uh, uh, other senators and representatives pushing K increased K through 12 spending, restored university spending. Um, they are out in front of pushing for additional spending because they don't have to pay for it. They, 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 have, they have first used up savings. They've second, you know, diverted the PFD. Uh, and now they're they're you know talking about using the permanent fund corpus to continue spending that they don't have to pay for, so they don't have to help put on the brakes. So it doesn't affect them, and they don't have to help put on the brakes uh, for uh, for continued spending. So that they will continue to be um, uh, protected, uh, held harmless, uh, 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 protected from from uh, from continued government spending. They don't have to bear the burden of it. So it's just, I mean, it's 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 designed to do two things. But at the at the end of the day, I think the permanent fund board being permanent fund board being involved in this uh, is just nothing short of outrageous and uh, just nothing short of a of a of an abdication of their responsibilities as a board to protect the permanent fund corpus. You know, uh, as I look at this story and I look at the way James Brooks wrote it, and I talked a bit about this yesterday. But they go on, you know, talking about, uh, you know, how, oh, this is the inflation proofing because it wasn't done right and we're running out of money and everything else. And, oh, but we can learn a lesson from New Mexico because New Mexico socked away money uh, when they had high cotton season and they did all this. And, I mean, there's no discussion of, one, the fact that over the last six years, Bert Stedman and company have socked away eight billion dollars out of the uh out right. of the, out of the earnings reserve into the corpus which wasn't tagged as as inflation proofing but it effectively was a massive amount of inflation proofing the fact that the POMV formula already had inflation proofing baked into it and basically what what they failed to say here but if you read between the lines you can see it is they are spending too much based on what they have and as you said the take is too much for what the inflation proofing and everything else does. It all comes back to the fact that they have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. That's what it comes back to. And the, and dis have and the disingenuousness of that, of saying, oh, it's all because of inflation proofing and this, and no mention of the monies that we said, and, and of course on your chart, no mention of the fact that they're showing all the income from this year and then future expenditures, but no revenue from, from future years kind of thing. 
Oh, it's clearly a manufactured crisis. It's clearly, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe count three uh, of my of my column on uh, on the permanent fund board is going to be, you know, they're 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 fiddling with the accounting. They're making up the accounting in order to to manufacture the crisis. Clearly, they're doing that. Of the eight billion dollars, four billion explicitly at the time that four billion was put in was for the legislative purpose of pre-funding inflation proofing. They haven't even used up that $4 billion yet. And then they put in another $4 billion, uh, uh, which the governor tried to veto, but he crossed the wrong line or he did something wrong. And, and so that $4 billion went in there also. Um, and and you know, following the purpose of the first $4 billion, it should be in there for inflation proofing. We are fine if you do the accounting right and you account for the $8 billion that's gone in there for pre-funding inflation proofing. We are fine uh, through the end of the decade. We're, we're, uh, we, we don't run out of money uh, unless we continue. Well, we don't run out of money uh, and uh, and and we're in, and the permanent funds in great shape. It, this is this is all because they see, you know, continued pressures of of uh, of spending coming or continued spending down the road. They don't want to pay for it themselves. They don't want to they don't want to burden themselves. So they're always they're just finding some other pot of money. Uh, to go tap savings first, PFD second, PFD cut second, uh, and now the now the permanent fund corpus. And yep, it is a it is a manufactured crisis. Uh, if they did the accounting right, it wouldn't be there. But you know, it's a crisis. It's a crisis. They're gonna. James Brooks didn't even James Brooks understands the accounting problem uh, and the accounting issue. But James Brooks didn't even didn't even bother uh, to mention it because well, you know the worst yeah, part all, was. All, 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 I'm just Go going ahead. to say the worst part was he mentions this eight this Mexico New Mexico uh, moving eight billion dollars in to bolster their funds, and it's exactly the same amount. That's the irony of it. He never mentions the fact that we transferred eight billion dollars from the ERA to the corpus. Some of it with the explicit intention of of inflation proofing the future. He never mentions it is. I mean, it's willful blindness or it's intentional at this point. Well, I, I... It's the it's the same problem that we have generally with the press in the state. The press in the state goes and touches base with, in this case, the permanent fund board, uh, spokesman for the per, for the permanent fund board, um, and a senator who's advocating the step. They don't look for the other side, uh, and that's an endemic problem not only with the with the Alaska Beacon but with the ADN, Juno Empire. Although they sometimes do a better job at it. You know, journalism is supposed to be balanced, right? It's supposed to be this guy said this, and then this guy on the other side said that. They never look for that. They they just they just go with whatever the press release is or whatever, you know, the the leadership of the of the Senate wants them to think or leadership of the House wants them to think. They also quote Bryce. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, so, Bryce, yeah, Bryce, Bryce now, Bryce now seeing the end of days of the PFD cuts is now looking for the next pot of money and. And uh, and and it's the and it's the permanent fund corpus. It's um, I it, it it is it is absolutely the wrong thing. And truly, I think that it should build into as I talked about last week, and I talked I'm talking about it again this week, and I'll probably talk about it in future weeks. Truly, should build into a concern about what's going on with the permanent fund board, and whether the permanent fund board. Uh, uh, is is complying with the with the obligations and duties uh, uh, that it has to to protect the permanent fund. It's frustrating, and the fact that every member of the permanent fund board was appointed by Governor Dunleavy starts asking makes me ask even deeper and 
bigger questions as to what's going on. Are they complicit in this? Is there something else going on? What kind of what kind of backdoor meetings have been happening for this whole thing to to come down to this point? It's astonishing. All right, Brad, uh, what are we doing at number two quickly? Number two is going to be about ADA uh, and uh, the Alaska Industrial Export and Development Authority, and it's going to be a, a not dissimilar rant about uh, about ADA's uh, what, what ADA is up to. As, as the rant has just been about the Permanent Fund Board. All right, we continue with Brad Keithley, the weekly top three. The Michael Luke Show continues. We're back with more right after this. What is that? Common Sense. Regularly heard on American Radio. Brad Keithley, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets, our guest. Brad, I I ended up saving this story for late yesterday, and I'm glad I did because I get so agitated when I start thinking about it and, and diving into it because it is so apparent that uh, the fix is in. This is a crisis that was created by Burt Stedman and company to begin with, and now the Permanent Fund Board has either played into their hands or is – just outright complicit in this whole thing. I mean, as you read through this story about the Permanent Fund Board uh, and their recommendations and everything they're saying, this all comes down to how much are we spending? That's what it is. We're spending too much. And so the the answer is, well, we need to do this, you know, for the and have access to the corpus, which just means it's going to continue. There's no governor on the amount of spend. They just want access to the next big pot of money. They want access to the next big pot of money that doesn't cost them anything. They want access. So so draining savings was essentially a tax on future generations, right? We we, we took away the, the, the safety net that had been built up for our generation. When we got to the 20 teens, we took away the safety net that had been built up for our generation. We've drained that. And we're not leaving anything in the safety net for future generations. So, so when they hit the same fiscal, when they hit the, their fiscal crisis, as they will, uh, in the same way that we hit our fiscal crisis, as they hit uh, their fiscal crisis, there's going to be no safety net there. They're going to have to be, uh, uh, they're going to have to, you know, tax themselves uh, to pay for it. Unlike what this generation is, we got off scot free because we had, we had savings. So we drained savings. So. You know, nobody had to no nobody had to pay for the additional sending savings or the additional spending. Now that now you know by 2016 we sort of ran through that, so we needed some other funds. So they started cutting the PFD. So they didn't. So the legislature, by by far and large, the legislature and their donors and the court and the oil companies uh, didn't have to pay uh, for it. Yes, somebody's going to have to pay it, but it's going to we we found a way to shove it off on middle and lower income Alaska families. Um, so, you know, we don't want to stop spending. We don't want to push back on spending because we'd be the bad guys. You know, Natasha doesn't want to be the bad guy. Giesel evidently anymore doesn't want to be the bad guy. Um, uh, and we want to, we want to continue to spend, but we just don't want to pay for it. So with the PFD, they found this unique way to, to, to slough it off on middle and lower income Alaska families. And now if you start draining the, if you start draining the permanent fund corpus, uh, again, it's a tax on future generations. You're 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 taking down the ultimate savings account um, uh, in order to avoid you having to pay uh, now uh, for the costs of government that you're passing, uh, but you know sloughing it off on future generations and not now. Not only not leaving them a 
a fiscal safety net in terms of savings. But now you're not even going to leave them, you know, much of a permanent, as much of a permanent fund uh, corpus. And so the the contributions that that they're going to get from the from the POMB draw, I mean, the POMB draw is going to go down five percent. If you if you take more out of the permanent fund corpus than you're putting in, the 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 balance of the corpus goes down, and five percent of that corpus keeps going down. So they're leaving they're leaving future generations with again. With less than uh, uh, with less than uh, what this general, and it's also uh, what this generation's gotten for itself, and it's also that they can continue spending, and the top twenty percent don't have to pay for it. Right. Which eventually, the irony of this whole situation is this is just a delaying tactic because eventually there will be taxes. That's the thing. I mean, eventually, as they go through, there will be taxes. Maybe not this year. If they get access to the corpus, it may be 20 years. But eventually, somebody's going to have to pay. And, uh, and of course, by that time, we'll be drained of money and it won't matter. Uh, I mean, at that point, you know, I guess maybe that's what they think. I'll be dead. It won't matter 20 years from now. You know, uh, somebody else will have to deal with the problem kind of thing. I mean, that's that's the whole point there. It, it reminds me of a comment that Gary Stevens, uh, the president of the Senate, supposedly made at some point about, I don't care. I'm only here for four more years. I just want to get through that. I don't, you know, yeah. what happens beyond that, somebody else's obligation. Exactly. Burden. Which is, this is a typical problem with the Alaska legislature. Retire, move away. Not my problem anymore. Not my, I mean, Gary's already moved away already. He's just filling time until it's all done. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. Like, share, follow. Let's uh, let's get to it. The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy? Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. Huh. Whew. I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. Yep. We're back to it. Uh, the weekly top three, number two right now, Brad Keithley, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Adia is the uh, is the uh, topic of the second of the weekly top three. Um, <laughs> Brad, um, rant away, my friend. What uh, What's going on with Adia and this whole Mustang LLC thing and all that stuff? So there was a column in, uh, uh, in uh, 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 the... Alaska Journal of Commerce. It was it was in the Alaska Beacon before that. James Brooks wrote about it in the Alaska Beacon, but it was republished in the Alaska Journal of Commerce from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it didn't make the top three last week, but it sort of moved up in my mind. The the, the, the problems with the permanent fund board just sort of, sort of dragged Ada, Ada up in my mind along with it. And the uh, and the headline is after being bailed out by the state, North Slope oil field is uh, is targeted for sale. And this talks about one of the smaller oil fields uh, up on the slope, originally developed by, I think, Brooks Range was this one. Um, and Brooks Range uh, spent a lot, uh, didn't get it into production. And when production came, it wasn't very much. Uh, and somewhere along the way, uh, talked the permanent fund or talked the ADA uh, into, I'll get back to the permanent fund about this in a second, but, but talked ADA uh, into, uh, into loaning them money. Uh, the article says before the foreclosure, Brooks Range uh, subsequently went bankrupt. It um, wasn't able to, to, you know, even with the aid alone, wasn't able to get the field up and running and generate enough revenue to pay off its costs. Uh, it ultimately went bankrupt and the aid alone went into foreclosure uh, uh, so that Ada got the, the assets that had been underlying the loan. 
Before the foreclosure, Ada spent $72 million developing the oil field and supporting infrastructure, not counting a special $22.5 million bridge loan from the Alaska Department of Revenue that went to uh, that went to Brooks Range. So they're $100 million uh, deep in this already, right? Budget documents show the investment bank has spent additional money, the investment bank being Ada, has spent additional money since then to maintain the project with little to show for it. Now, now they're getting now they're getting the point. This article is about a proposed sale uh, by Ada to a, a small company called FinTech, FinTechs, I think, um, and uh, and how you know Ada's pursuing that as a way of, uh, of uh, as a way of dealing with this asset that they had to foreclose on and spent so much money on. There's no indication, by the way. Uh, in the article uh, about uh, uh, about how much they're getting paid uh, from uh, uh, from fintechs for uh, for the purchase, whether it's covering the the investment, even covering the investment they have in it, much less the the uh, uh, any sort of return uh, on that investment, the foregone interest that they have. Uh, no discussion about what the uh, uh, about what the terms are. There's a hint that they aren't great. Because uh, Randy Raro, the uh, the chief executive of Ada, is quoted as saying that they're covered by uh, the purchase is covered by a letter of credit from a bank, um, and so they'll get paid either way, regardless of how the the project turns out by fintech. Well, the only time you need a letter of credit is is in, in a in a situation like this is when you're getting paid in installments, and you're concerned about whether or not you're going to get the future installment payments once you. Right. Handed over title to the asset to the other party, so it sounds like uh, they're selling this on 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 the installment plan, um, and that they're going to get paid in installments, and they've got a letter of credit to back it up uh, in the event the installments uh, don't come through. But it doesn't tell you how much the letter of credit is or how much uh, how much the dollars are. the 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 rant on this is not so much the sale. I mean, when you've got a bad asset, uh, if you can sell it. Rather than continue sinking money into it, you can stop the bleeding, and you can get some value out of it uh, before it just completely implodes. Uh, that's a good thing. It's it. The rant is about how Ada gets into these situations um, uh, in the first place, and and why it's uh, making a loan like this for a, for a small oil field that's that's having trouble. The owner of which is already having trouble. Why it's why it's doing that uh, in the first place? It's it's propping up the market. It's propping that up that oil company because evidently the oil company couldn't couldn't get a bank loan or couldn't get it on terms that uh, that were attractive for it. So Ada came in and 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 shortstopped that. Why why is Ada getting into these things in the first place? Another one that Ada is involved in is the Ambler Ambler uh, Road, uh, the road out to the Ambler Mining District, two hundred mile road. Uh, they've got one. There's only one mine under development on that road. It can it can support. Ada's talking about financing that road with the cost of that road, which may be more than a billion dollars. Talking about financing that road with uh, with 30 year bonds, but the but the 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 project, the one mining project that's 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 under development on that road, only has enough for three years. So I so there, there, it's not even close to being enough. Uh, to cover the cost that Ada is that that Ada is pushing forward to uh, to spend uh, to develop that road, they justify these things. Ada justifies these things. Oh, on well, it means jobs and economic development, and you know this these are projects that otherwise might not lift off the ground, and we're helping out. 
getting jobs and economic development. Well, hang on a second. Where's this money coming from? And, and it's coming. The marginal source of revenue anymore in this day is PFD cuts. And so we're taking money out of the pockets, out of the Alaska economy in terms of PFD cuts in order to give it over to, in the case of, of, the, of the, 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 the Brooks Range uh, uh, oil project, giving it over to an oil company or ultimately its creditors, uh, or we're giving it over to Ada to, to finance a road, maybe a road to nowhere, uh, in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of mining development, they're they're financing these things, telling themselves these are good investments based upon prospective jobs and prospective income, a prospective Im impact on the economy. But in order to finance them, they're taking it out of PFD cuts and taking it out of things that absolutely do generate jobs and generate uh, uh, economic impact uh, uh, in the in the economy. So it's, it's, it's taking money from middle and lower income Alaska families and putting it in these speculative projects that may or may not uh, pay out in order to finance jobs that may or may not come to exist and finance economic development that may or may not uh, come to exist. It's a bad trade. And, um, and I think that Ada has really, I mean, another example of Ada going overboard uh, is the Anwar leases. Ada is the, was the only holder, only remaining holder of leases up in Anwar uh, before uh, before the Biden administration terminated uh, terminated those leases and and it's just Ada I think is sort of like the permanent fund board they're sort of losing the sense of their mission their mission isn't to go out to the bleeding edge and finance things that may or may not uh, come to pass they're sort of to you know try to try to be a good source of financing partial source of financing uh, for projects that you know have a lot of certainty to them. You ought to look at them like a banker, not like a like not like an investment banker putting a lot of speculative money out there, especially when it's not your money uh, that you're speculating with. So I, I think I think I think aid has lost its uh, lost a sense of its mission as well. One more thing on this, <laughs> and it goes back to goes back to the permanent fund board. Remember the permanent fund board's in-state investment program, and we've talked about it on the on the show before. Uh, and and uh, no doubt we'll talk about it again. But that's really what the Permanent Fund Board was trying to do. They were trying to get in the investment banking business and say, look, you know, we'll be a, we'll be a source of funds for in-state Alaska developments. And, and we've already got Ada doing that, in my view, doing it poorly. We don't need the Permanent Fund Board uh, uh, layering on top of that, uh, uh, going right. down the same road. So right. um, uh, we, we've got it. These boards, I think, uh, are 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 going beyond the boundaries. Permanent fund board, certainly in the case of of advocating for uh, uh, advocating for the, the the new proposal, uh, and Ada, you know, just going out for speculative, becoming the financing source for speculative projects. What's Ada's? Um, I mean, their track record's not great to begin with. Right. I mean, their track record historically <laughs> is not great to begin with. I mean, they have thrown money after so many different projects that have gone just belly up and flopped. I mean, uh, it's not it's not something that you would want to invest money in. If you were if you were investing alongside Ada, you'd be broke at this point. Yeah. Historically, with the permanent fund, you made a lot of money. But historically, with Ada, you would you wouldn't get the return. And it's the one the one project they keep pointing pointing to is the DeLong Mountain Road, which uh, uh, is the is the road that runs from uh, uh, the Red Dog Mine 
out to the port that uh, hauls away uh, Red Dog Minerals. And Ada keeps pointing to that as that it otherwise wouldn't have happened. It was a great investment. We're making money on it. Look how look how good that's turned out. Well, and and so they point to that for Ambler, and they also point to it for other things. Of you know, we know what we're doing. Look at look at this road. Well, that road was like a twenty mile road compared to the Ambler two hundred mile road, and that was to a mine that was already under development and 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 had proved its ore. Uh, one mine, not 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 depending upon a bunch of mines, but one mine that had that was under development and improved its ore content uh, before Ada made the investment. Otherwise, you got, you know, things like the like the fish processing plant in, in Anchorage that's been turned into a church and and uh, uh, and and other projects that Ada has been involved in throughout the throughout the state. It, it's not a bad idea to have a small investment bank to help spur uh, development, but you don't. I mean, I think they've. I think they've just gone way beyond that purpose. They're they're trying to be a bigger investment bank with the Anwar leases, with the with the Ambler Road, uh, and and with this with the field up on the up on the North Slope with the Brooks Range uh, uh, field. They're trying to be a, a a big investment bank that takes takes all this risk. The thing with Goldman and the other investment banks, though, is. It's the partners taking the risk, right? I right. mean, it's their money. They on have the a line. fiduciary that, responsibility to themselves and to their investors. It's not like we just got all this free money laying around. Let's try it out. Right. It's 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 there's an incentive, an economic incentive for them to be careful. Ada has no economic incentive. It's certainly not the board members' money that they're playing with. And turns out, since the middle twenty teens, when we've shifted over to PFD cuts as the marginal source, turns out it's middle and lower income Alaska families money that's that they're playing around with and they're and they're treating it they're not treating it with the respect uh in my view the respect uh, uh that they and the care that they should certainly not the respect and care that goldman and other major investment banks give uh, give to the investments they make all right brad number three is coming up what is it let's hit it we're gonna jump number in. three number three number three is uh another way to look at oil tax credits i wrote a column Last week's uh, landmine column is about uh, another way to look at oil tax credits, and I want to talk about that. All right, Brad Keithley, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. We are continuing another three. Up next to the weekly top three, we will be back with more of the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. It's the Michael Dukes Show. Why not take a quick break? Be right back. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Donna says, uh, I wanted to try and sneak this in, but we just didn't have enough time. Donna says, uh, oops, uh, I wanted to find, find it. Here it is. State-run so-called corporations have no accounting, no administrative requirements, and no accountability. I mean, this is the crux of the problem. Like I said, I mean, I ask about the track record of ADA because how many – okay, sure, they made it in one project, the, the Red Dog Mine project. They made it in one project. How many other dozens of projects have they poured – I mean, just this Mustang uh, situation up there – it, uh, over well over a hundred million dollars invested, and what are they going to get out of it? 
30 cents on the dollar, 40 cents on the dollar. That's not a return that we can live with. That's not. But this is what happens when you just write these guys a blank check and say, go play, go play, go do your thing. Go see what you can do for Alaska. No accountability, no accounting, no administrative procedures. This is where we're at right now. Yeah, Greg Erickson, uh, an economist uh, who understands the state very well, um, uh, goes back as long as uh, as long as uh, as uh, uh, other economists, but back farther than other economists, uh, worked for the state for a while, understands state economics. Greg Erickson did an analysis of ADA comparing the investments made by ADA to the investments made by the permanent fund, basically saying, look, if we hadn't spent this money through ADA, we'd spend it through the permanent fund, what would have been the result? And the result would have been that we would have had more permanent fund earnings uh, that would have come back into the economy uh, either through uh, the POMB draw or come back through the into the economy through the PFD. We would have had more permanent fund earnings, more earnings for the state, more economic activity for the state if we would have invested that money in the permanent fund than with ADA. ADA's response to that is, yeah, but we produce more jobs. Uh, and we produced more economic activity inside the state. Okay, but there's a, the, then you've just raised another question, Ada, which is what would have been the jobs uh, and what would have been the economic activity uh, if uh, if you if we if you hadn't invested and suffered these losses? Uh, if uh, if we you know if that money went out through uh, through PFDs because that's what we're cutting in order to to give you money now. Uh, and there, there's been no analysis of that. Um, I can take a guess at what the answer to that would be, uh, but there's been there's been no detailed analysis of that now. But right. ADA just always falls back on, yeah, yeah, we may not make money, and yeah, yeah, we may have we may have these these blown investments, and yeah, yeah, we may lose money uh, for the state, but jobs, economic economic activity. Well, subsidized jobs and subsidized economic activity is not really how you want to run a state. I mean, that's how you ultimately run yourself into the ground. Ask yeah. Argentina. Yeah, well, that's exactly <laughs> uh, it. Which leads to another question. Amy actually emailed me this question yesterday, and I was going to ask you it, but she's posted it in the chat room. Um, and I know, <clears throat> I, I kind of know the answer to this, but she says, will Alaska go bankrupt in the next 10 years? Uh, I mean, we have a we have an $80 billion permanent fund, so I don't think technically we would go bankrupt, but the pa practices that we're that we are doing right now could lead to something disastrous in the next 10 years. So you think, Brad, give me, give me your take on that. Alaska won't go bankrupt in the next 10 years. We may not have a permanent fund dividend uh, in the next 10 years. They, the state may have to absorb that to avoid, to continue spending and, and avoid taxing, you know, top 20% for, uh, for the, for the cost of that spending. Uh, we, there may be various aspects of, of Alaska that changes, but I don't think it'll go, uh, I don't think it'll go bankrupt. The thing that really sort of the sleeping monster out there when you when you worry about things like that is um, is the unfunded pension obligation. Uh, the unfunded pension obligation ultimately uh, is backed up by um, uh, uh, the permanent the permanent fund corpus uh, under the Constitution. Uh, the pension obligations of the state are constitutionally protected. Uh, in a way that likely allows access to the permanent fund corpus to uh, to pay them off. So, and if the permanent fund corpus goes, yeah, we may be talking about bankruptcy. We're talking about significantly, talking about a significantly different state. But that's not a ten-year problem. It's probably a thirty-year problem. Uh, if you add now, if you start layering on things like uh, uh, allowing uh, uh, 
doing what what uh, the permanent fund board suggesting and merging the er the earnings reserve and the corpus and allowing draws in excess of earnings uh, from the corpus if you do that uh, layer that onto the pension obligation I mean you can create and and if the economy turns south and oil prices go south and oil production goes south you can create a scenario where you know at the 30 25 year mark 30 year mark we could get to bankruptcy, but not the t- not the next ten. Right, but <clears throat> definitely, there's a lot of pain-driven stuff going on right now that nobody seems to be really acknowledging, and that's the that's the that's the problem here. All right, uh, thirty seconds out. Ding. Uh, Brad Keithley is our guest, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. He'd rather talk about music uh, and the music festival, but you know we gotta we gotta talk about all this tough stuff that's going on. Um, it's just astonishing. Again, such short-sightedness. I don't care. I'm only here for another four more years, and then I'm out of here. I, I think a lot of people are feeling that way right now. All right, uh, Brad Keithley, let's get to it. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-Based, Free-Thinking Radio. Here we go. Okay, we're back. Brad Keithley, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. One final segment, the weekly top three. This is number three. Another way to look at oil taxes. Brad, you've got charts and everything, which I have up here. So give me the give me the rundown here, my friend. All right. So uh, about the same time I started focusing on the Alaska budget, I started focusing on the federal budget. Uh, just to better understand where we were, the, the place we were in, and the uh, and the and the types of activities were going on, and you know how we could how we could do a better job getting getting it under control. And one of the things one of the things that that I that I got reminded of uh, as I looked at the federal budget, and uh, it reminded me, frankly, of a set of law law school uh, uh, lectures that I that I had when I was uh, when I was back in law school, uh, was the concept of tax expenditures. And the concept of tax expenditures is that is that Congress does direct spending, certainly uh, a lot of uh, a lot of direct spending, uh, but they also do expending through the tax code, and they do that by creating these uh, deductions or these or these exclusions or these exceptions in the tax code that essentially allow a category of taxpayers uh, to pay less. Uh, than the than the standard rate than the uh, than the than the than the market price slip would would, would seem to indicate allow them to pay selected uh, uh, beneficiaries to pay less than uh, less than the uh, uh, less than the the going tax rate and economists and, and lawyers call those tax expenditures because they are they look at them the same as spending the same way as any other spending except it's just happening by allowing reducing the tax code, reducing the tax rate, and allowing that money to stay in the pocket of the of the beneficiary, of the tax beneficiary, uh, as opposed to directly giving the money out of the out of the uh, uh, out of the government fund. Uh, they're just uh, reducing the government fund and allowing that money to stay in the first place um, in the hands of the taxpayers. And what in what some of the some of the organizations that look at uh, look at federal matters closely, 
Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, the Concord Coalition, the Pete Peterson Foundation. What those groups do is look at tax expenditures as spending and line them up as spending and say, look, do we really need to be doing this tax expenditure? Is it, is it a better use of taxpayer money, uh, taxpayer spending than some of the other things or or alternately, could we reduce the tax expenditures and uh, and improve the revenue that's coming in to offset uh, offset spending levels? Uh, when you think out of it in Alaska terms, they sort of they sort of put the tax expenditures in the swoop chart. Uh, those who follow the legislature closely knows that there's a chart that legislative finance does called the swoop chart that shows the highest spending agencies down to the lowest spending agencies. That's why it gets the name, the, the swoop chart, and, and it, it enables the legislature to have a view of where most of the spending is going, where various categories, what spending is going in the various categories, and sort of helps target uh, where potential savings might be. So what the federal, what these federal watchdogs do uh, uh, is they take tax expenditures and put them in sort of the federal equivalent, equivalent of the swoop chart and say, look, you know, we're, they may Congress may not tell you that we're spending all this money, uh, for example, on the employee health exclusion uh, benefit exclusion from the tax code. Congress may not tell you that we're spending all this money. But in fact, when you look at at the swoop charge, when we put the tax expenditures in, you can see that that's one of the biggest categories of spending. Overall, tax expenditures at the federal level level are over a trillion dollars. They're about the size of the deficit. If you wiped out the, if you wiped out all the tax tax expenditures, you'd have a balanced budget. So I took that concept this, in this last Friday's column in the Landmine. I took that concept and and applied it to Alaska, and and asked, you know, do we have tax expenditures here, and what size are they, and how would they fit in the swoop chart? And the answer is yes, we do have tax expenditures. We call them indirect expenditures as opposed to tax as opposed to tax expenditures. Uh, but we, we do, in fact, have them and we do, in fact, uh, 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 keep track of them uh, as a result of legislation that Steve Thompson uh, introduced in the early 20 teens. One of the one of the positive things that Steve Thompson did. And so we keep track of them. And there's a report done annually by the department, semi-annually, biannually, every two years by the Department of Revenue of what those tax expenditures are. And then there's an analysis done every other uh, every year by a legislative finance division of a portion of those tax expenditures to see if they're if they fit the purpose of the legislation and if they're if they're good uses of the public funds the biggest tax expenditure are the are the credits the per barrel credits to oil uh, they're about 85 80 percent uh, of the uh, of the overall tax expenditures if you put them in the swoop chart so i so i said okay i I've identified we have tax expenditures. I've identified where they are. Let's put them in the swoop chart. If you put tax expenditures in the swoop chart, uh, tax expenditures would, would be the third largest spending category behind only K through 12 and Department of Health and Human Services. It would dwarf every other spending, spending category uh, in the budget. And, and of those tax expenditures, as I said, about 80% of that is the per barrel tax credits. If you strip those out and just put those standing alone uh, in the in the swoop chart, they would be the third largest. <laughs> uh, standing alone, they'd be the third largest uh, uh, category of spending in uh, in state government. So just like just like the, it happens at the federal level when you start questioning tax expenditures 
compare them to spending or compare them to, you know, could we could we save there? Just like we talk about saving on K through 12, or we talk about saving on, on university spending, or we talk about saving on health and, and social services spending. Could we save there, reduce the, the expenditures there, uh, and reduce the deficit in the budget? Um, and and that's a question that's not been asked. But but by viewing them as uh, as a as a tax expenditure, we raise that question. I will say this: the the tax expenditures have been subject uh, uh, are are calculated uh, biannually by DOR, so you know the amount that they are. They and they are uh, reviewed by Legislative Finance Division for whether they achieve the legislative purpose and whether they are whether Legislative Finance Division recommends they be continued or terminated or reconsidered or, or, or some, some categorization. The last time LA, uh, Legislative Finance Division looked at the per barrel tax credits, they said it was, they were not able to determine, it was indeterminate whether those credit, credits were achieving the legislative purpose. The purpose at the time the credits were adopted was to, to incentivize additional production. Legislative finance said they could not tell whether, in fact, those credits were incentivizing additional additional production, achieving the legislative purpose. And when and when LF, when legislative finance uh, commented on whether they ought to be renewed, terminated, uh, reconsidered, the classification that legislative finance put them in was reconsideration. Legislature hasn't done that. Uh, that analysis was two years ago, three years ago. By legislative finance division, that they weren't that they they could not determine if they were achieving the purpose and uh, and recommended redetermination or reevaluation. Uh, the legislature uh, legislature hasn't done that. So I, I think I think we tr we like at the federal level, we really ought to be starting to look at these tax expenditures at the state level as another category of spending, allowing some people off the hook for legislative purposes, off the tax hook for legislative purposes. We ought to be looking at them as spending and comparing them uh, to uh, other spending. Natasha wanted to do that with PFDs. You right. wanted to consider them spending and compare them right. to other spending. But why shouldn't we do that with uh, with tax expenditures as well? And uh, you don't have the swoop chart on your uh, on your uh, uh, post on this, but there is. You do have the one chart about expenditures, and you could see in this chart that basically it. Uh, uh, it you know it equals the it equals the deficit in uh, in many ways here, uh, and it, it surpasses right. the deficit and then equals the deficit. You could see those seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. That's after the major tax credits uh, per barrel tax credits were finally uh, put to bed. Uh, but you could see that it was reigning supreme there for quite a while. Yeah, when you measure, I mean, one of the ways to measure tax expenditures at the federal level is compare them to the deficit. As I said. If you close tax expenditures at the federal level, you would wipe out the deficit. They're that large. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that from the state standpoint as well. On that chart in the blue is uh, is the debt, the size of the deficit per year, uh, which is which I calculate as being the the size that they took out of the the the, the size of the PFD cut that they diverted over uh, to balance the budget. So that's the size of the deficit that's in blue. Uh, the size of the tax expenditures which again are largely driven by the per barrel credits, the size of the tax expenditures are in red. And, and in, in every year, except the last, except this is, this is from the data that legislative finance and uh, Department of Revenue had. So it cuts off at 2021 as their latest data does. 
but in every year except the last, uh, the size of the tax expenditure is outstripped uh, the size of the deficit and averaged over that period, over the five years of that period, uh, tax expenditure is outstripped the size of the deficit. That means like at the federal level, if we if we eliminated the tax expenditures, uh, then uh, then the uh, the deficit would go away. I'm not I'm not suggesting uh, that you know we eliminate uh, all the tax expenditures, but we at least ought to. I mean, if they're of that size, like spending that we that we that we now analyze on a year to year basis and decide whether or not we have enough money to spend. Like spending, we ought to be analyzing the tax. Should be part. Should be part days. of the discussion. Absolutely. Uh, Brad Keithley, right. Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. We're out of time. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you coming on board. Thank you, Michael. Uh, folks, out of time. Hour two, dead ahead. The Michael Duke Show. Yeah, I mean, when you look at that chart, Brad, you're like, <clears throat> wow. <laughs> you're like, uh, okay, so all this deficit spending, all those per barrel tax credits, everything else. That's essentially where the majority of the spend for the PFD came from is uh, or went to was in all those things. Uh, and in some cases, except we would have had a surplus if we had uh, if we had not given the full per ba- uh, per barrel tax and, and the credit program and everything else. Um, it's <laughs> it's just shocking. Again, all this ideas with other people's money. Whether it was ADIA, whether it's the oil tax credits, whether it's the permanent fund, it's all all this other people's money. We know we know what to do with this. You guys just shut up and sit down. We know what to do with this. This is it, this is insane. And, and again, Michael, I know I, I know I hammer on this point too much uh, for some in the audience, but again, uh, it's it's other people's money other than the top twenty percent. <laughs> it's it's middle and lower income Alaska families. The top twenty percent is deciding how to spend middle and lower in, uh, and mid, middle and lower income Alaska families money. Uh, and they don't have to spend any of their own. Per rail credits, yeah, that's fine, yeah. All companies, yeah, yeah, let's, let's give that money to you. Oh, it's not our money that we're giving to you, but but yeah, we'll, we'll give yeah. you we'll give you that money. We'll, we'll, we'll do that for sure. Uh, James asks an interesting question here. He says, how does the overall tax structure compare for an oil company in Alaska versus an oil company operating in the Permian? Well, I mean, first of all, the Permian is all privately owned land, right? I mean, that's a whole different that's a whole different deal, um, Brad. Well, I get asked that question a lot, and, and that's really not a fair analysis. I mean, the, the 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 you really have to look at overall costs and 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 margins and and the ta- and what the tax is of the margin of the oil companies, uh, the margin uh, revenues above spending margin of the oil companies in these different places. You can't really look at it uh, in, a, in, in, a, in that sort of geographic way. Um, I would say that, the, that the, tax, uh, the tax on Alaska, when it was designed in 2013, was designed to bring up additional investment. Uh, and it had the effect of doing that. And that additional investment has resulted in additional production. We were on a steep decline curve in 2013. We weren't getting uh, anywhere near proportionate share of the investment investment dollars that were flowing into the industry at the time. The tax system was designed to, to increase the margins in a way that uh, brought additional investment into Alaska, and we achieved that. The problem is we've not looked at it since. We've not looked at it for the last 10 years. I mean, we legislators will say, oh, yeah, we sort of looked at that, but they really haven't on, on a basis that on, 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 on looking at it from the standpoint of is this necessary to maintain investment? 
is the amount of investment we're maintaining is that a is that a good thing or is it worth it worth the cost in terms of PFD cuts and other things uh, or not? And and I think I think the the economics of the industry overall has shifted over that time. And I and frankly I don't think uh, I wrote a column on this at one point. I don't think that the uh, that the that that the amount that we're giving the oil companies in terms of the tax credits is needed to maintain the level of investment that uh, that we have. Uh, I think if you look at it uh, uh, in terms of in terms of what would it be the impact on investment, what would be the impact on production if we increase the tax credits by an additional uh, or decrease the tax credits by an additional four or five dollars a barrel, uh, I, I think you would see that the that the impact on production wouldn't be much. Um, and in fact, uh, DORs. This is before Adam Crum, but DORs uh, last look public look. Uh, at what uh, the impact of, of changing the per barrel tax credits would have. Uh, the DOR's last public look said there wouldn't be any impact uh, on production, that you could drop the, the tax credits by 4 to $5 and you wouldn't have any impact on investment levels or on production. Right. So I, 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 th I think it's time to take, it's past time, to take another look at that uh, and, um, and look at the per barrel tax credits. I don't think, it, I don't think it's helpful to look at it compared to the Permian or compared to North Dakota or compared to, compared to the UK or compared to Abu Dhabi or compared to Saudi or compared to any, any place or Indonesia or Nigeria or Angola. Um, I don't think it's really useful to do that. You have to look at what the impact is on Alaska margins, given Alaska costs, given Alaska timeframes, given, given the Alaska situation, you have to look what the impact is on margins um, uh, and see whether that, that it, it, it detracts or uh, uh, adds to uh, uh, investment and what the cost is of that of that impact. The irony, of course, is that if we eliminated the per barrel tax, we'd get getting more money from the oil companies. There you go, Harold. There you go. We get more money from the oil companies. Uh, it's something we should be doing. Uh, just another thing that we could be talking about. Um, Brad, uh, less than a minute here. Final thoughts for today. Final thoughts for today is I think the Permanent Fund Board is going way the hell overboard. Uh, and I think we ought to start giving serious consideration to, as we did with the Utilities Commission in the late 1990s when we sunset the Alaska Public Utilities Commission and created uh, the Regulatory Commission Alaska, just started all over and created a new board. Uh, I think we need to be considering doing that with the, with the Permanent Fund Board. And I'm going to be talking more and, more and writing about that more and more. Well, this this. This proposal is just outrageous. Anna Adia. I mean, it. let's just go ahead and start talking about whether we should shutter that operation as well. Hundred million dollars. Um, all right, Brad. <clears throat> well, I appreciate you coming on board. I hope you enjoy uh, the day. Are you there for a little bit longer? Is there a festival going on right now? This is my last day. I leave tomorrow. Uh, I head out uh, tomorrow. So uh, this is. I'm, I'm looking out at the at the at the wonderful scenery. Uh, uh, for the last time, and uh, I've got I'm going to visit a few friends and then shut it down and head for the airport. Bittersweet, my friend. Bittersweet. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on board. Thanks for being part of it today, Michael. As always, uh, thanks for having me. I look forward to the discussions. You bet. Thanks so much for coming on board. All right, Brad Keithley, our guest, uh, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. All right, we are getting uh, we're getting ready to go to it. Here we go, the Michael Duke Show. Hour two dead ahead. I'm going to recap a little bit some of this and rehash and talk a bit with you about it. And we'll see what your uh, we'll see what your thoughts are as well. 
Back with more of the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukeShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Hello, good morning, welcome to the program, hour two of this Tuesday edition of the show. And if you're just finishing up, or just joining us rather, uh, we just finished up with uh, Brad Keithley from Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets in the weekly top three. Um, and if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast, which is available wherever you find great podcasts, uh, including Spotify and uh, iTunes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we are ready to uh, we're ready to go to kind of recap some of those things and talk about it. Uh, but you can go back and listen to it and or watch it, I guess, on the replay on YouTube or Facebook or wherever. So lots of good stuff happening here. OK, um, so uh, I just there's a, Brad had a lot. I'm trying to unpack everything that Brad had laid out there. Uh, one, of course, was the discussion about the permanent fund board um, and their decision, their decision uh, to uh, get involved in this. And uh, what I would consider to be their collusive nature, I guess, with the crisis that's been manufactured by um, by the legislature, by Bert Stedman and company in the legislature in uh, uh, with the with the permanent fund corpus and the permanent fund earnings reserve and everything else in between. It is <clears throat> it's it's um, it's astonishing. It really is that we have got a situation where they have become so desperate for money. And to keep the uh, level of spend at the um, at the current level, that they are willing to sacrifice Alaska's future to make sure that in the short term they can spend at the level that they want to continue to spend. That's essentially what's going on. If, by some chance, they were able to put together a constitutional amendment to combine the earnings reserve account and the corpus of the fund and create a POMV path to draw directly from the corpus for future generations, and even if it was at the 5% that they're getting now uh, or that, you know, that they want now, the overall uh, effect of that 
would be, you know, the real rate of return could go up and down in the fund. But overall, that four and a half percent, you know, of what they've consistently been bringing in is not going to be enough. If they continue to take a half a percent more, half a percent more than what the real rate of return is on that fund over the years, you know, in 20 years, you've got a real problem because you've now drawn down the corpus of the fund to the point to where it won't, it's diminishing returns, right? You continue to draw more of what's available to invest, uh, and those returns therefore get smaller, and you take continue to take more of what the smaller investments return, and the next thing you know, you're at a you're at a, a fixed point of where you just can't continue to spend at the level that you're spending. Now, remembering, of course, that each and every year that the state budget continues to rise, regardless of what anything that happens in the legislature, the baked in increases in the um, the baked in increases in the budget will go up a hundred to one hundred and fifty million dollars every year. So in a 10-year period, you'll have an increase of a billion to a billion and a half dollars in the budget in 10 years. If nothing else changes, if there is no increase in programs, nothing else, we just set it on autopilot and walked away, it would be a billion to a billion and a half dollars more than what it is today. Now, <clears throat> you can see with what Brad is saying here that the top 20% <clears throat> do not want to have to face any kind of taxation now. It may be inevitable in the future. You and I have kind of, uh, I mean, I've discussed this. I, I believe that it's inevitable in the future that Alaskans will be faced with a tax at some point based strictly on the uh, based strictly on this this the amount of spending and the spending habits and the philosophy of those who have been in the legislature and uh, it's eventually going to reach that tipping point to where there will just not be enough money available I mean like Brad said they've already gone through the savings they burned through all the savings they've now burned through the majority of the permanent fund I mean we're getting a whopping 25 percent right? Although that could be next year, it could be totally different, could be less. Eventually, the permanent fund itself will be gone, and they're already looking at the next big pot of money, which is the corpus of the fund. And you would see, you would think that as they look at this and they see what's going on and they see the fact that we're struggling every year to fully fund all these different things, you would think that at one point they would say, well, maybe we need to ratchet back the spending a little bit to try and prevent this train from going off the tracks. But instead, what are they what are they doing? Oh, we need more. We need a billion dollars for education. Oh, now we're talking about a defined benefits program, which um, I want to say, was it a billion two or a billion four was the fiscal note on that in the long term. Not to mention the fact of what it sets up and now it would continue to grow our unfunded liability for defined benefits participants, right? And remember, this would be retroactive to many people. So what is the initial cost? I mean, we just don't even know. It's going to be a billion dollars, okay? Let's just say, let's just round it down and make it easy. A billion dollars, okay? 
So we're already got, you know, we want to spend more on education. We want to spend more on defined benefits. We want to spend more on this program and more on that program. There is no slowing up the appetite for spending. And let's just say hypothetically, you know, people in the chat room like Harold and stuff have, have gone on. And, oh, we if we only had just been taking all of our oil and getting more money for our oil and fixed our oil taxes. Well, <clears throat> what would have happened? They would have spent every dollar there they could as well. Because that is their nature. I mean, this reminds me of the frog and the scorpion, right? Crossing the river. Uh, you know, the, the, the old, uh, the old story about the frog giving the scorpion, the piggyback ride. Don't sting me. Okay. Yeah. No, they get in the middle. He stings him. Why did you do that? Well, it's in my nature. I mean, that's just, it is, it is what it is. And you've got legislators who have been there for years, decades in some cases, who believe that they, in their heart of hearts, that they know better than you how to do this. Or maybe they're building up for some kind of long-term retirement. And, uh, I mean, <clears throat> Gary Stevens' push to get this legislative uh, raise, the salary raise, was so, to me anyway, maybe not to you, but to me, was such a blatant grab at the end. Because, again, he's on, his, he's, he's on his way out. He's already said it. He's not going to run again. He's not going to do that. He wanted to get those last few years at the retirement level of making sure that he bolstered his salary for the because the salary the the 20 years ago when he got started right and got vested in the system his retirement is based on what his top 3 years 80% of his top 3 years so if he can get two or three years in there at $120,000 a year well the base is 80 something thousand now so again he's going to get 80 but if he can get his, you know a couple years of that in there a couple three years all of a sudden Sure, his retirement, he can pull in, you know, $60,000 a year in retirement on top of everything else he's doing. And ready to go. I mean, he's already got his house in Hawaii. He's already, you know, spends most of his time over there, does all that. So I saw the same thing in Fairbanks years ago. I remember... It was Hank Hove or somebody that was in the legislature doing these things. And the commentary was that came down to me through the grapevine was he's like, he didn't care. He's retiring. He's going out. He's moving out of state next year. He just wants to make it good for whoever he's, you know. This is the problem, folks. And then the whole 80th thing. You've got people who are getting paid handsomely, I might add. People who are getting paid in an agency or a state corporation like ADA who are <clears throat> just out there playing with people's – it's like playing Monopoly. It's not their money. doesn't really mean anything to them. They're going to take a guess. Every now and then a gamble pays off like the Red Dog Mine Road, but every other time they're losing money to the tune of – I mean, in this thing with Mustang, as Brad pointed out, they're into that for $100 million plus. And what are they going to get back out of it? Something. But is it going to be the same? And where's that money coming from? Well, it's coming from you. And again, the marginal spending is all being funded by permanent fund cuts at this point. So we've got a whole group of folks who essentially have no accountability. 
They have no long-term vision. And in the long run, they really don't care about what this does because, for the most part, many of them are probably going to wander off in the pucker brush when it's all said and done. And we were talking about Liz Vasquez yesterday, right? Liz Vasquez, who's uh, – or no, not Liz Vasquez. I apologize. Liz Schneider, right, who is uh, – you know, she moves up. She goes into the legislature. She does this moving or shaking thing. She tries to do it. Two years later, she moves back to Florida. Do they really care about what's going what's going on? Right? It's <clears throat> it's insane. But this is what we're living with right now. This is the reality that we are in. And until we as a people start holding our legislators and more accountable for this kind of stuff and start calling them out on the pushwa that's going on, you know, the, you know, the pushwa. That was just BS. Yeah, that stuff. And still we start, until we start calling them out on that, this is what we're going to get. And again, the reporting is not doing us any favors on this. This thing with James Bro, I'm still, now I know that James is liberal, right? I know that that's his slant. I knew that from the very beginning. But he usually would get something, you know, he'd usually have something to redeem his stories. It's, it, he writes very well overall. But this story uh, in the ADN, which was a reprint from the Alaska Beacon, talking about the Permanent Fund Board and this push to for this constitutional amendment and all this stuff, that is insane. There is no mention of the monies that have been transferred from the earnings reserve. Going on and on about how the sky is falling. And the earnings reserve is 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 going to be bad. There's not going to be enough money in it. Using the false numbers that they said where they account for the revenue for one year, but then they include future expenditures in future years without including those revenues. Of course, which, of course, is exactly the same thing that Bill Walker did when he was trying to justify taking the permanent fund. Oh, look at how much money is in here. And look at how much we're going to have to take and spend. And in the future, there's not going to be there. Except for you didn't account for the future deposits that were going to be in there either. It's all bull. And and then James had the audacity to write about New Mexico putting away $8 billion into their various permanent funds to protect for the future and acting like we didn't. When we put exactly the same amount of money into the corpus of the fund from the earnings reserve, which Bert Stedman, cunning like a fox, did as a way to exacerbate and create this crisis. I mean, and what do we do? This is way deep in the weeds for most people. They have no idea that this is the stuff that's going on. They have There's no reporting on it other than maybe, you know, a show like this or some other radio show or some blog post or some, you know, a more obscure article that most people don't read or show that people don't listen to. They get their stories from the mainstream media and they read James Brooks and they start wringing their hands and they just, oh, we'll do whatever you got to do to save us. Because people, they just, they don't, they're not paying attention. It's depressing. (laughs) That they're just not paying attention. They're getting sold a bill of goods and they're lapping it up like mother's milk. 
All right, we got another segment coming up. Then Chris Story is going to be up. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Listened to by more staffers in Juno than any other show. Because their bosses told them to. And after what they just heard, oh man, they're going to be pissed. You're a bad, bad man. The Michael Duke Show. I think I depressed myself on that one. I'm just so agitated by this whole thing. And... I'm just thinking, I should have gotten a job in government. (laughs) That's what I should have done. I should have just shut up and gotten along to get along and just gotten a job in government and, you know, fleeced the golden fleece as long as I could and then jumped out with my golden parachute and done all that. That's what I should have just done. Should have just done that. Didn't. But I should have. You get a chance, just send your kids out, you know. I mean, at this point, it's like uh, living off. You should just live off the enemy supply lines until the whole thing collapses. That's what you should do. Man, not paying attention, uninformed, flat out don't care, says Denise. That's true. Not paying attention. This is the majority of people in the state. You talk to some people in the state about, I mean, you show them the last 15 minutes of the show and they'd look puzzled because they don't even understand that, you know, what, what is, you know, what's going on. Uh, Randy says, James Brooks mentioned about the subject of transfers from the earnings to the corpus for the purpose of inflation proving nine times. Okay, uh, you're missing the point, Randy. That's not what I'm talking about. Yes, he talked about the inflation proofing, but he didn't talk about the additional $8 billion that was transferred there. Although he did bring up New Mexico transferring $8 billion, and maybe we should learn from them. Again, totally ignoring the fact that we had additional transfers of up above and beyond the inflation proofing of $8 billion. By the way... Why do we even need to have inflation proofing? Because the POMV is supposed to this POMV is supposed to automatically inflation proof. <laughs> Chris has got it right. Should have been a tier one employee. You know, you're right. I should have. I should have gone to work for the state at 20 years old, been a tier one employee, worked my 20, retired, went back to work to double dip, and then you know, retired again at 50. I could be free and clear right now making a healthy income, but I didn't because I was philosophically opposed. Damn those principles. Damn it. I mean, that's what, what are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I just, I'm watching this, you know, again, it's, I've, I've I've used this analogy many times, but it just feels like I'm in the cab of the locomotive and I can see the bridges out, but I don't have any hands on the controls. All I can do is scream at them to grab the brakes and to stop shoveling coal into the firebox, right? And that's all they're doing. They're just shoveling coal into the firebox and turning the throttle up and hand me their beer and say, here, hold this. It's going to be spectacular. 
And I could see that the bridge is out, and all I could do is scream into the wind that the bridge is out. Or I could have been a consultant, says Herder. You know, maybe I should have started an Alaska study industry uh, company or something. I could study the study that studied the previous study. I mean, hell, with AI, I could have just dumped all those studies into an AI and said, spit me out something new. And gotten paid $500,000 for it. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's what I feel like, right? I feel like I'm in the cab of the locomotive watching all this unfold and just being like, it's like a nightmare, right? I'm naked in my underwear screaming at these guys to please stop. And then I'm going to have to take a test afterwards. That's what's going to have to happen. And these guys are just like shoveling the coal in, cracking the the throttle open a little bit wider. It's going to be fun. Don't worry. We'll make it. It'll be spectacular. Here, hold my beer. I mean, that's all I can can see right now. (sighs) Can I post the Brooks article? Hey, sure, I'd love to post that Brooks article. Let me post that for you, Willie, so you can take a look at that. And you could see exactly what I'm talking about. All right. Here we go. <clears throat> We're jumping back into it. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like, share, follow, do all the stuff. I was going to take some calls, but I'm not going to do that because I'm I'm pissed. Back with more. Here we go. Okay, welcome back. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. I was going to take some calls, but I'm just, no, I can't do it. I'm, I'm fixing to yell at somebody, and I just don't want to, I just don't want to yell at you guys. That's I just, that's not a good way to do things. Um, I caught this article, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Now, I'd be the first one to say, when I hearsed, when I hearsed? When I first heard about this, um, I was like, "What's what's uh, what's what's going on?" I'm like, "What's what's happening here?" When the Matsu Borough School Board voted last month to redri- to restrict the ability of the sole student representative to participate in public meetings, I I was like, "Huh? Well, I mean, I don't understand." Not that again, student participation is. Well, I mean, it's a good thing, okay? I mean, I I want students to participate and to understand and do things like that. But again, we're adults making adult decisions for the kids because they don't have the ability and the life experience to a lot of times make the best decisions, right? We all can probably acknowledge that. So I was looking at this and I thought, well, you know, why, why did they do that? What was going on there? I got a couple emails from people who basically said, oh, I just didn't understand what was going on, which is very possible that I did not understand what was going on, uh, Quite, nor did I really care, uh, quite honestly, in the in the long run. I mean, again, remember, my kids are not in school and, and, and have never been to public school. And so the school, what the school board does, I find infuriating sometimes and, and wrong and, and 
But for the most part, I'm just like, meh, okay. I mean, you guys do it. Again, remember my whole com- my whole uh, uh, my whole commentary about how if I was going to fight over the school systems, I'd definitely take my kids off the battlefield before I went to battle, right? And that's what I did. So I, you know, so somebody said, well, you're wrong because they did it for a specific reason. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, again, I'm not against, first of all, I think, you know, students participating is a good thing in one way, but at the same time, there shouldn't be like a they shouldn't be like voting or swaying a vote or anything like that. If they want to have their comment period or do whatever, that's fine. Do they need to sit on the podium? I, I mean, I'm again ambivalent to it, one way or the other. But I found this interesting. It's an article out of the ADN uh, by Amy Bouchatz, um, uh, which you can find again at ADN.com if you want to go over there and take a look at it. Students and staff at Tumatsu High School say they were questioned by administrators as part of a district-level investigation into a student-led protest at a contentious early September school board meeting. The protest was centered on a school board vote last month to restrict the ability of a sole student representative to participate in the public meetings. The investigation sought to reveal whether teachers had violated a Matsu Borough School District policy banning them from participating in activism at school or politically influencing students. It involved more than two dozen students who described being individually questioned by school administrators, as well as three, at least three teachers, according to interviews with students and staff. No inappropriate actions by staff were uncovered during the investigation, according to the statement provided uh, by the spokesperson. The district statement said that the members of the school board requested the inquiry, but uh, they no inf- additional information was, was uh, provided. Students interviewed for this story said the investigation began a few days after a September 6th school board meeting where the board voted 5-2 to two to dramatically limit the role of the board's student representative. About 10 students spoke in protest of the policy change, while dozens of others attended in protest dressed in yellow, stand for student signs, taped to their foreheads. An estimated 30 students at both Wasilla High and Matsu Career and Tech School were pulled from class or called between periods by school administration staff on the days of September 8th and 11th. Uh, They were asked whether each teacher or, excuse me, they were asked whether any teacher directed or encouraged them to protest and whether instructional time or school supplies were used to create protest materials such as signage. At least two teachers... <clears throat> at least three teachers who served as student government advisors, two at Career and Tech and one at Wasilla, were also directly questioned about their influence and any school-funded support. Uh, but protesting the meeting was entirely the student's idea. People interviewed for the story told the ADN. So I, I found this interesting to see, is was there a little activism going on in the school, were the teachers encouraging these kids to go strike? Were the or, you know or protest? Were the teachers encouraging these students to go do these things? This is at the heart of this investigation, and um, I find that interesting. I find I just find that wholly, wholly interesting that this that they even considered that this is a possibility. And again, <clears throat> if I have a suspicion, if I was you and I had students in these schools and I had a suspicion that this was taking place, 
that these were that these teachers were basically proselytizing my children to go out there and become student advocates instead of teaching them history and the basics of reading, writing, arithmetic and doing all this other stuff. But in Ken was encouraging them to activism. I think I would start asking questions about maybe this is not the best thing for my students. I just that may be, you know, I just think maybe that is not the best idea for those kids uh, to 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 go on and do that. Um, it goes on to talk about the um, uh, it, it goes on to talk about the the change of the board policy until September. The student representative designated a board member by district policy regularly sat on the dais while other members during meetings uh, with other members and was permitted to fully participate in all but executive session to include questioning witnesses or testifiers. Um, And uh, that was slowly. And this goes back. This goes back to the library review panel and all different kinds of stuff. Uh, But this whole thing is that when they are looking into the fact that teachers and students are being questioned as to whether or not the teachers are, I was going to say radicalizing, that's really not the right word, proselytizing, I guess, is still the proper word on that, to see if they are encouraging these kids to go out and to protest and strike and things like that. That's a little worrying to me. Now, this is this is the Matsu, okay? Probably the reddest district in the state. And when you got questions like this going on, and this this points to one thing to me. This points to one thing. How important this upcoming election in the Matsu is, especially for school board. And as we pointed out, is it yesterday? Because today's Tuesday, so of course it was yesterday. Um, we pointed out yesterday the fact that Ole Larson is being outraised three to one by his opponent, who is... Um, uh, you know, playing the darling of, you know, and, and playing dumb as to the fact that she's a former NEA president and everything else and trying to sound very conservative in this district. You know, everything that she talks about, she's trying to sound very, very conservative, this Diana Scheib. Uh, besides, except, you know, except for the fact that, of course, she's a former NEA president. She's got um, she's got uh, Margot Bellamy as a financial contributor. The Pat Chesbro, the Democratic U.S. candidate, U.S. Senate candidate, is her deputy treasurer. I mean, except for all those things, she sounds like the perfect candidate, right? What I'm saying is, is that these these races, it happened in Fairbanks. They got totally rolled. In the Matsu, these races matter. This is important stuff. And when you see stuff like what's happening at these schools with whether or not the teachers are proselytizing or encouraging these kids to strike, whether there's even an investigation into that's what's going on, that would raise my eyebrows big, bigly, bigly for sure. And it proves nothing more to me than the fact that these races coming up on the 7th of November are going to be very, very important. And we should be paying and again, it goes back to what I've said and been saying for the last 10 years. Stop paying attention to all the stuff that's happening at the national level and all this other kind of crap. Who cares who's the next Speaker of the House at this point? You have no control over it. Does it really matter? It's like watching paint dry. 
Pay attention to what's happening in your local communities, what's happening on your school boards, what's happening in your city councils, what's happening in your road service areas, what's happening at your borough assemblies. That's the stuff that's going to affect you every day. I don't care if Jim Jimmy Jam Jims is the next whoever or Scalisi or, or whoever else they're putting up. I don't care because, again, I have no control over it. I can help here at the local level. That's where we need to be paying attention to it, in my humble opinion. Or not-so-humble opinion at this point. All right, uh, Chris Story is up next. He's going to be our guest. We're going to continue this, The Michael Luke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Back with more right after this. Don't go anywhere. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay. 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 Trying, trying, trying not to, uh, trying not to, not trying not to lose my chill here at this point. I need this, I need this final segment with Chris Story because I need to not lose my chill here. All right, uh, Denise says they absolutely encouraged uh, the teachers to the students to strike, but they all said no, no, of course not, because they're protecting those teachers, right? Um. Terry says, you can bet your last dollar that teachers encourage students. There are too many liberal teachers teaching their own ideology. Uh, Denise says, my son had to call twice and tell the principal to tell the science teacher to teach science and stop degrading the current POTUS. I mean, you know. Um, Our districts are more worried about candy, literal candy, than other stuff. A memo was just put out basically saying no candy ever. Um. It's only fixing the problem. Uh, here's what Brian says. Fixing the problems at the most local level first will go a long way to fixing the problems at the state. I mean, it's a trickle up. It really is. It's a grassroots trickle up. Uh, it doesn't matter who's a speaker. doesn't matter who's – none of that stuff matters because once they've been placed in office, you have no control over anything. I mean, sure, you can call your congressman's office or whatever and have your say, but that's it. You can't control any. There's no. You have no influence over who's going to be the next speaker of the house. And at this point, why? Why waste? I'm not wasting any energy worrying about it. I don't even care. I just literally could give two uh, on it. I just don't even care. So. <sighs> Uh, Melissa Burnett, a school board member in Fairbanks, says yesterday's Newsminer article, Bobby Burgess, first order of business is to bring back the sex ed addendum that we got rid of in June. It's so important to pay attention locally. Yeah. So they voted again. Uh, Melissa, the first thing I do is ask the attorney, is this dilatory? Because anything that's just been decided recently, usually within six to eight months, can be considered dilatory because the body has already decided on it. Um, so I'd be asking the attorney, 
is this motion dilatory? That'd be the first thing that I'd be asking. Um, yeah, Brian says, call your congressman, call and they'll make placating noises, but in the end, they really don't give a rip. No, they're there for life, essentially. I mean, that's essentially what they're saying here, is that they're there for, they're there for life. That's what it's all about. Um, they're in it until somebody drags them out with their, by the knuckles. All right. Here we go. Good. Good morning, Michael. Hello, sir. How are you? Fantastic. So good to hear your voice. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I practiced that several times, so I wouldn't I, laugh when I I know. It. I know. It's kind of hard, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Lift me up, Buttercup. That's 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 what I need you to do today. What uh, okay. what what's our topic for this morning, Mister? The law, Sensei. The law of economics. The law of economics. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Good. How was your week? How how are things going? Give me some good. Give me something to smile about. What's happening? Well, we're only two days into the week. That should give you something to smile about. You have several more days before Friday, so that should give all of us who love what we do. Uh, a big cheer and lift up as we start this wonderful Tuesday in the dark, right? I hate you so much right now. <laughs> oh, Michael. In a loving Christian way, I hate you so much right now. Right, right. <laughs> oh, I feel your hatred. Gives me a warm I'll raise fuzzy. you. <laughs> I see your hatred and raise you one iota of care and compassion. <laughs> Oh, man, Chris, sometimes, you know, this whole world, it just it's madness, man. It is just total madness. And you're like, I mean, you feel like, am I the only one that sees this? Am I the only one that sees the madness? Because I'm just, you know, and then you're like, I don't know. I so You just got to throw your hands up in the air. Sometimes. Did you ever watch Modern Family very often? No, I'm not a sitcom guy. Oh, Jay Pritchett goes to his wife's or one of his employees, Quinceañera's. And his wife kind of pushes him too. And so he pretends he knows everybody. And uh, he thinks it's a kitchen year, but that's across the hall. He's actually at a, at a wedding, a uh, Mexican wedding. And he sees the, the bride and groom dancing, who he thinks is the father-daughter dance. And the, he sees the, the groom put his hand on sort of the lower back and just upper rump of the bride. He thinks it's the daughter. He goes, am I the only one seeing this? And he starts freaking out. And again, he was just looking at the wrong thing. So yeah. it's about perception and where are you standing? Are you in the right quinceanera, Michael? Yeah, maybe out. I'm not in the right quinceanera. Maybe I'm getting married all over again. I don't know. It's uh, it's crazy. All right. Uh, so the law of economics, that's what we're talking about. Okay. Yes, sir. All right. uh, Brian, uh, hold on, hold on, Chris. Uh, Brian says he just posted in other news, the Reason article on Americans don't like much. I read that article yesterday. I thought about having JD on to talk about it. <laughs> oh, man. All right, here we go. Sorry, the Michael Duke Show. All right, uh, Chris Story, the man from Homer. I told him I really needed him to lift me up today. 
and then he said I was too heavy, which was really offensive and um, and hurt hurt <laughs> my nice. hurt my feelings. I just I it just it hurt my feelings. Uh, Chris Story, hello, my friend. What is uh, what be the haps? What do you uh, what do you got going on? What uh, what what today? You want to talk about the law of attraction? No, no, the law of economics. That's what it was. Something similar to that. What's uh, what's on your mind, yeah. my friend? Believe it or not, those are actually interchangeable. Yeah. Um, the law of economics, just thinking about our capitalist society, and I wouldn't want to live in any other kind of society. And essentially, if you misunderstand or if somebody in your life misunderstands what is capitalism because they confused it with crony capitalism or monopolistic capitalism or quasi-governmental capitalism, things like this, capitalism is essentially a belief system that says the capital, the money, belongs to the people who earned it, period. That's it. The, the communism and socialism believes that the money is better spent and handled by the government. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, wait, old B.O. told me that I didn't earn that, that I didn't build that. I didn't earn that. That was other people. That's what, that's what he told me. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of smart people. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of smart people out there. You're not that smart. No, but the law of economics cannot be denied. It's a law such that you could prove it by saying, I can't, I don't know how I could demonstrate the law of economics to you as quickly as I could demonstrate the law of gravity. You can violate the law of gravity by jumping off of a building and you pay the price. The law of economics is just as real. However, it's not as obvious. So if I could break it down, the law of economics, and I didn't invent this, I'm just sharing it with you. This has been, this is from the beginning of time. However, it was codified in the early part of the 1900s by Napoleon Hill as you cannot get without giving. The law of economic states, again, just very quickly, you cannot get without giving. And maybe the corollary or a follow-up law would be the law of reciprocity, meaning you cannot give without getting. You give anyway. You, you don't necessarily show up to give charitably because you know you're going to get something, but you give anyway and you can't help but receive. Uh, Emerson called this a law of compensation. No one can do without getting. Do for others, you get for yourself. It's a law. It happens whether you like it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether or not it's as obvious as dropping an apple from a tree and hitting Newton on the head. It's a law nonetheless. And Napoleon Hill mapped out a way to implement this, which I know you're going to ask me, so I'm preemptively giving you the way. No, um, but it's you. not just a way to more money. You're welcome. It's not just a way to more money. It's a way to riches, health, prosperity, which means, as Buckminster Fuller said, the amount of wealth you have going forward without working for it, a meaning in your life or purpose or a passion for living and loving that it's Tuesday, not Friday, if you love what you do, uh, and relationships, deeper better, longer-lasting relationships, all these kinds of things. So here's the implementation. It's simple. Select what you want for you. Make sure that it's yours, not that which is put upon you by family or well-intending friends or people in your social circle. Select what you want individually. Create your plan for getting what you want, which, remember, means also giving. There is no getting without giving. There's no giving without getting. And then put the plan in action. And the cork in this wonderful bottle of champagne that we're creating here is persistence. And that creates a lot of questions and persistence creates a lot of problems in the world in the, this idea of the law of economics or reciprocity. Persistence can be 
mislabeled in a lot of ways. But just to repeat, select what you want, create your own plan, put the plan into the action now, like not tomorrow, but today, and then right. follow through and have persistence. So we could let's dive into persistence a little bit. But I think this is such a elegant, beautiful, simplified way to look at the world that gets morphed and twisted through governmental means and uh, all kinds of organizations, organized labor and everything, all well-intentioned, but it mislabels what is capitalism and what is the law of economics. Right. It simply states you cannot get without giving. Well, and I think you, you highlighted it earlier when you said not to be confused with crony capitalism, which is what mm-hmm. I think a lot of news shows and talking heads and everything else, they lump that all in together. It's the difference between capitalism and the free market, right? I mean, a true free market, a true capitalistic issue is definitely not one where they go hat in hand to the government and say, give us all your money for your contracts and tax all these people to make it happen. That's the problem. But again, even the capitalistic system we have today has done more to lift more people out of poverty than any other thing in the history of the world. So, I mean, however you want to do it, it's still important to, but it's still important to know what the true definition is. Exactly. And I I love, I play the Bono clip pretty regularly on my show, just as a reminder that Bono from Ireland, from Dublin, from U2 fame said that we know capitalism has done more to lift people out of poverty than any social aid in the world. And, you know, that's a horrible, horrible Irish impression, but that's what I love to play on the show. I do it through his voice rather than <laughs> You do it with own. his voice than your own because, boy, man, hoof, man. Notice that Napoleon Hill's plan doesn't have a timeline to it. So the question then would become, well, wait a minute, Chris, if I select what I want, create a plan for what I want, put that plan into action and have persistence, how long is it going to take? And Napoleon Hill would have told you, as long as it takes. We don't know. I don't know how long it's going to take you. Jim Rohn would have asked, how long do you give your average baby to walk? How long will you give them to learn to walk before you just say, forget it, strap them in a chair and push them <laughs> everywhere they go. It, you give them as long as it takes. So you might need a better plan. If you're many, many years into the plan and not seeing results, not getting, even though you keep giving, then you might want to change your plan. It's okay to pivot. It's okay to change course so long as you're not doing it too soon before you, it's like pulling the plant up by the roots to see if it's growing. Ah, man, this would have been a doozy of a carrot if I just left it in the ground. Sometimes you have to leave it in the ground. Sometimes you have to switch lanes, switch courses, change lanes, get off this ladder. Like Stephen Covey said, oh, what if you get to the top of the ladder only to learn you've leaned it against the wrong wall? That's a terrible thing. So figure out where you want to go. A little book that I highly recommend, and, and people will come to me sometimes. I mean, I'll never forget a woman came to, to me and Tiffany and said, I'm thinking about getting out of the business I'm in. Uh, what do you think I should do? I was like, well, hold on. Let's talk about it. I recommended this exercise for her that I'm going to tell you about, and it's found in a little tiny book by Seth Godin, and I recommend anybody in a quandary get it. It's called The Dip. It takes about 45 minutes to read, and he says, Seth Godin says, look, are you in a dip and about to come through the other side up and over the horizon to greatness or whatever it is your objective is in success? How are you defining it? Or are you in a cul-de-sac and you're going round and round, repetitive motion, going nowhere, and you'll never leave the cul-de-sac? You'll just go round and round for the rest of your career or life or relationship. Right. So which is it? Are you in a dip about maybe you're three feet from gold, you're about to strike it rich and you give up? You're about to have success and you give up. No, 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 it's too soon. Or you get to determine if you're in a cul-de-sac 
And again, this repetitive motion, Peter Drucker coined the phrase purposeful abandonment. So it's not just quitting because we're, we're raised to think quitters never win and winners never quit. Well, sometimes they do. When Michael Jordan started playing bas- baseball, it, no, it wasn't good. So he went back to basketball and that's okay. He tried it and it just wasn't, he just wasn't the Michael Jordan of baseball. Uh, he, he was never going to be Pete Rose and you can bet on that <laughs> little inside baseball there, but you get to select what you want, pivot when necessary, and you'll become the great butterfly having struggled through the cocoon. But what if you're, you know, take the ugly duckling. What if you're not a butterfly at all? What if you're, what if you're meant to be something else, doing something else? It's okay to pivot, but then just reinstitute the law of economics and recognize you have to give in order to get. So what was the, uh, what was uh, uh, the method by which you helped this woman decide whether or not she was in a dip or whether she was in a cul-de-sac? So that's a great question. Didn't help her decide, helped her see. So it's a little bit like the the old adage about the, the people in the jungle and, and you know, the, 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 uh, the workforce is the ones with the machetes blazing the trail. The manager is the one, you know, telling the work faster and the leader is the one who climbs to the top of the tree and says, wait a minute, we're in the wrong jungle. And so we just helped her see, because we were 30,000 feet above the situation and she did quit. She did leave the business. She abandoned it on purpose and, um, she contacted us later and said she'd never been happier. It was the greatest decision. And she realized she was in a cul-de-sac for the business and it really wasn't even what she wanted to do. She just had to end it up there. So she was really grateful. And it wasn't us. We didn't help. We didn't help her make the decision. We just helped her see the landscape with which she was traversing. And she realized it was a cul-de-sac for her. Well, great. What was the method by which you did that? Quit slipping the question story. How, what was, I mean, how is, is there an analysis? Is there a check sheet? Is there, how do I, how do I look at it and make that, you know, make that analysis for myself? If I look around and go, boy, I'm in a cul-de-sac and I didn't know it. How do you make them, how do you open the eyes of people? What, what do I need to do to do that? I think just understanding that analogy, that's what worked for me. It's what worked for this gal. Just understanding that sometimes it's just permission to, look at something through those eyes of like, I can quit this if I want to. Knowing that it's permissible, knowing that there's no shame in it, sometimes allows you the room to make the decision. She walked into our offices already knowing she wanted to quit, but she didn't think it was okay. Once she she realized, wait a minute, I'm at a fork in the road and I can take it, as Yogi Berra said, and she chose the, the option she already knew in her heart was best for her. And I think she just needed to see through distant and different eyes these options in front of her and so again it's something you if you're struggling with it my suggestion my hunch is you already know if you're struggling with that decision right you probably in your heart already know and just recognizing some of the symptoms or signs like in other words if it's like for example and this is going to make you groan i know it will michael but i cannot wait for for monday morning I love what I do, and I can't wait for Monday night because that means Tuesday's coming, and guess what? Tuesday morning, I start my day, well, I don't start my day, but I the, one of my best highlights of my Tuesday morning is talking to you, and then this afternoon, I'll be doing my live radio show, and then I'll be with the rest of the week. I love what I do each and every day. However, there are things that I've tempted or pursued within the context of what I'm already doing that I realize, you know what? That's a cul-de-sac. I'm going to let that go. Right. And we either sell a division of the business, sell a property, or I'll, I'll abandon 
on purpose. Maybe a manuscript that I'm writing, it's like, it's not working. Okay, this is going the wrong direction. Move on to something else. These are the kinds of things you begin to recognize. So the more often you think about, is this a cul-de-sac or is this a dip? And on the other side is about to be something that I want. The persistence will pay off. Then the law of reciprocity or the law of economics will pay you back for that time. If you're in a cul-de-sac, you probably already know it because you can look back and go, you know what? I've lived the same year right. over and over again for the right. last two, three years, and I'm in the same spot I was. Right. So once you recognize that, then you can make the decision. I can't make it for you, and you can't make it for me. we got less than a minute here, but I'm just going to say the two questions that somebody asked me one time when I was in a similar situation, and they asked me two questions. They said, where do you see yourself in 10 years if you remain where you're at? That was the first question that really made me think in the long term. The second thing is, if you had a million dollars in your bank account right now, would you still be doing what you're doing? That was enough of a question for me to answer. I mean, that was that was an answer. Just those two hypotheticals now adding to the fact, are you in a cul-de-sac or are you doing – I mean, this is great stuff. Chris, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you coming on board. My pleasure, Michael. And you are not in a cul-de-sac. You're, you're a dip. Wait. <laughs> wait. Wait a second. Wait just one moment. Hold the line, Chris. Chris Story, the man from Homer. Folks, we're out of time. Tomorrow's Wednesday. We should be hearing from Mike Shower. Be kind. Love one another. Live well. We will see you tomorrow. I got to say, Chris, those really were two questions. I mean, they're simple questions. But I really hadn't considered it because I was like, you know, because I did. I felt like I was in a rut. I wasn't sure, you know, where I want to go. And this, my friend said, so if you continued on in 10 years, where, what do you see happening if you stay where you're at for 10 years? Are you in the same spot? Is there opportunity to be more big? And I was like, oof. And then he's like, and if you had a million dollars just appear in your bank account today, would you continue to do what you're doing or would you go do something else? And those two questions were, that was my jump start into making some changes in my life and uh, some of the best changes I ever made, quite honestly. But uh, kind of running along this, a, yeah, kind of running along the same lines. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I heard a father ask his uh, millennial son, uh, if, you, if you had a million bucks, if I just gave you a million dollars tomorrow, what would you do? And he goes, if I had a million dollars, I'd never work again in my life. And, and guaranteed never to have that million dollars. If that's your attitude, you know, you're never going to yeah. get it. If, if you if you just think that the ideal is to, to lay on a beach and have umbrella drinks brought to you, probably the universe will ensure that, that you don't get that million bucks. But that, those are two good questions. And I think just your friend did what, what we did for this gal. Just you looked at something with different perspective or just different eyes. And I think sometimes, you know, either a therapist or a coach. And what I love about coaching versus therapy, and I'm not, this isn't cascading therapy because there's, it's, it's definitely worthy for some people. As long as you go with the intention of getting better versus just, you know, it's like the old adage about the uh, the light post. Some people uh, look for a light post for illumination, others for support, and there's something to lean against. And so what I love about coaching is that it starts with what you're doing right, what you've got already going for you. You have so much potential. Is it being wasted? And is this persistence something that is going to, actually just keep you in this circular motion for the rest of your life or is it and then say it's okay see it's almost like a roundabout it, and there's an off-ramp here let's go this direction quit this start that and take what you've learned and move forward but yeah again it's just on that perspective that a coach 
and that person was a coach in your life can give you that little extra perspective. And, and sometimes that's all you need is one and done. Sometimes you want to go in uh, for this kind of coaching or helpful uh, vision for months, but it doesn't have to be forever. And then you can make your own decision. So you said you're either in a cul-de-sac or what was the other one? I've, I've already forgotten. It. Dip. Yeah, dip. You're dip. in a dip or a, or a cul-de-sac. Yeah, you could be coming out of that dip. You don't know. Uh, I like your well, idea. Well, you know the Napoleon you know the Napoleon Hill story, Three Feet from Gold. It's a yeah. literal true story. The yeah. guy quits digging three feet from the gold vein. And yeah. so it's it's the same thing. Yeah, no, exactly. I do like your idea of the roundabout, though. The roundabout is even better than the cul-de-sac because you're in the roundabout and all you're doing is going round and round and you keep not paying attention to the off-ramp that you could take to keep you from going round and round and round. And uh, and I, I like that. You have that. options. Yeah, until you look at that bird's eye view and realize, oh, there's other roads I could, there's other roads less traveled that I could take. Uh, sometimes those roads are scary, man. Sometimes you got to make a decision. And, you know, there's there's comfort in that rut. There's comfort in that cul-de-sac. You know everybody. You know all the things. You are friends, and you know you are, and you don't want to upset anybody, and you don't want to do. It. But sometimes you got to make those changes. Sometimes you got to do it. It's uh, yeah. It's and it could be have scary. Have you ever read? Uh, have you ever read anything by uh, Art Williams? He created the insurance company called Al Williams, which eventually became Primerica. Uh, uh-uh, no, I haven't. He was a high school teacher and a football coach and wanted to get into big business and nobody would return his calls. The headhunters, the executive placement people just would never return his calls. So he started his own company in 1977. By 10 years later, he was the, the largest term life insurance uh, company in, in all of North America. So it's just about pivoting. He could have stayed a coach and a high school teacher for the rest of his life, but he wanted to do something different. So he got off the cul-de-sac as he determined and went into big business and other people might hear that and go, my God, I would give anything for tenure and a retirement plan and the, the three months off in the summer and fine. Then teaching in high school sports wouldn't be a cul-de-sac for that person. Right, it would right. be exactly the right path. So it's unique and individual to each of us, like our own fingerprint. All right, my friend. Well, I appreciate you coming on board. Thank you for joining us. As always, uh, you're a breath of fresh air that I needed today just to kind of alleviate the anger in my heart. So I appreciate you. (laughs) All right, Michael. Have a good day. All right. We'll see you later. All right, folks. We are out of time. We got to go. Tomorrow is hump day. Yeah, baby. Hump day. Excited about that. We hope you have a good one. Be kind, love one another, live well. See if you're in a cul-de-sac or if you're just in a dip. Make that decision. Appreciate you. We will see you tomorrow. Be yeah, Stay ungovernable, my friends. We'll see you then.
we've shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show.